Here's the question for you to think about. If you had one chance to speak to the world, one chance to say something, maybe a minute or two to give a message, we'll even say not even the world, just a massive number of people, what would you say? What would you tell them? We know the answer of the prophet Isaiah. We've been studying this book of Isaiah, and we know what he would say because he he made it clear at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 34. If you look at Isaiah 34, verse 1, this is Isaiah telling us how he would summons the nations. It says, draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. The first line in Isaiah 34, 1 from the Christian standard, the CSB says, you nations come here and listen, you peoples pay attention. So there's the call. There's the prophet who has been speaking to the nations surrounding Judah and to Judah itself. And now he is saying he wants every nation, every ethnic group, all the earth, every person in the world to listen to what he is about to say. And then comes verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. I'll go out on a limb here and say that when I asked you what you would say to the nations if you were given a minute, that, that verse 2 is probably not what came to mind, that those words that Isaiah spoke may not have been the first ones that you thought of. That Isaiah would call the nations, pay attention, listen to this, and that he would say then, God is enraged with the nations and furious against all their host. Uh, Isaiah 34 at times can feel uncomfortable. It is a, a prophetic statement of God's judgment, particularly in light of verse 1, the fact that he has said, I want all the nations to hear this. This is this important. I, I want you to pay attention to this. And the fact that he would then say what he does, that the creator of the universe has wrath toward all the nations, can be a little unsettling. He then goes on to say, against all of their host, and that's what the ESV translates it as. It's really armies. It's just another way of saying what the Hebrew word is there. He is enraged at all the nations, and he is furious against all of their military, all of their armies. The, the reason that he says it that way is because the armies symbolize man's reliance on his own power. Armies give the, the, the misleading idea that because I have an army, I can do whatever I please and, and be like God. And so it's through military might that nations generally assert themselves one over another. It's through uh, militaries that dictators typically subdue people. Uh, the tyrants of history who've tried to take the place of God or think that they at least have control over life and death, do so usually through military force in some way. And so that's why God singles out armies or hosts in verse 2. But the main point here that we should see is, is he is saying there are no righteous nations. His anger is against all of the nations and all their host. It is against them that he has devoted to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Nations battle against nations, sometimes for just and defensive purposes. However, no nation can claim the mantle of being the always right nation. 
that, that we are the perfect nation, that we're always just in all of our ways, that we always follow the righteousness of God. No nation and no people get a pass. We are all guilty before the one who is perfect in righteousness and justice, and that is God. And God is entitled, based on his perfection and holiness, to be angry against man's sin and man's rebellion. This morning, as we go through chapters 34 and 35, we're in a part of Isaiah that really began back in chapter 13. This is sort of the the culmination to this whole large section that began with his oracles against the, the neighboring nations around Judah. We started in chapter 13 with those prophetic oracles of warning to Gentile nations. We move then to his judgment on Judah for relying on those nations, for trying to trust in those nations instead of trusting in the Lord. And and what we've seen again and again throughout this passage is this cyclical nature of God identifying the people's sin, describing his judgment of that sin, and then his redemption of sinners. Over and over again, we've been reminded that God alone is holy, God establishes his law, and it is right and true, and man disobeys it. The pinnacle of his creation repeatedly defies God and refuses to trust in him and thus incurs his judgment. But that is never the final word. As we've seen over and over again in Isaiah, those statements of judgment are often followed by statements of encouragement, that there is hope, that there is the possibility of repentance, that God does redeem and he does restore, and we will see that abundantly here in chapters 34 and 35. The two chapters are sort of mirror, sort of the opposite direction. One holding out the reality of judgment, the other holding out the hope of redemption. And so there's this glaring contrast. Chapter 34 describing how God in his justice will punish the nations, will in the end, his way will be final and there is no forestalling that. And then in chapter 35 showing that God has made a way of hope and restoration. Those who remain in their sin will not escape God's wrath. That is the message of chapter 34. There is no putting off God's justice or or asking God to somehow overlook his justice. But then Isaiah 35 is this glorious vision of God's people singing and rejoicing forevermore. So Isaiah is setting before us one of the most significant prophetic messages in the book, right here in chapters 34 and 35, because this is really summarizing a lot of what we've seen already, as well as looking forward and saying the holy creator, his holiness being a point of emphasis in Isaiah that we'll come back to in, in, in chapter 35, the holy creator of the universe will bring judgment on his creation, and we should not shrink back from declaring that truth but he has also made a way of holiness for those that he ransoms, those that he redeems. And so we we need to, as we approach these two chapters, live in light of these truths. The, The reality of God's anger toward sin and his judgment of sin, even even as we are surrounded by people who struggle with that and we're tempted sometimes as believers to almost apologize for for sort of this dimension of God, the reality is this is is who God is. He is just and righteous and holy. And, And he will speak clearly of his anger towards sin. We need to live in the light of that truth. We need to allow it to impact us. We need to allow it to comfort us The fact that God is just is what says in a world of injustice and evil, the the wrongs will be righted. God is not 
simply missing stuff. He will be just in all of his ways, but also to know that there is hope, that there is redemption and restoration for those whom God redeems. So keep all that in mind as we begin to read. I'm going to pick up in verse 3 of Isaiah 34. This is strong language as, as it speaks of God's judgment. Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise, the mountains shall flow with their blood, all the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. He's doing two things in these two verses, in in verses three and four, sort of reminding us that judgment is in one sense individual and in another sense cosmic. In other words, when you come out of verse two, we see God judging nations, armies, we sort of see kind of community judgment. Verse 3 is making it very clear that sinners suffer for their sin, that there is judgment that actually takes the lives of those who remain in rebellion against God, and so there is individual punishment. But verse 4 then stresses the fact that God's judgment in the end, when, when the king comes and God judges, that the creation will experience this as well. And this should hearken back in our minds to Romans 8 and the idea that when the the sin came into creation, when Adam and Eve sinned, that creation becomes corrupt and begins to decay as a result of man's sin. And so Romans 8 tells us that the creation awaits the return of Jesus Christ because it's currently in this bondage to death. The creation is experiencing death. And so at God's final judgment, his description here in verse 4 is that even the, the stars in the heavens will dissolve. One writer put it this way, the universe is not eternal. Human sin has infected it with built-in obsolescence. For all of the ways that people have imagined the end of the world and all of the different ways that Hollywood has tried to portray that on the screen, always with some, some hero who comes in and saves the day at the last minute and does something to save the earth from destruction... The reality of Isaiah 34 of God's promise here is man will not be able to stop the judgment of God. There is no preventing this. There is no heroic action that will cause God to stop when he pours down his judgment on the earth. The king of creation has decreed it. And he goes on, verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidney, uh, kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Again, this is difficult for us in our reading sometimes to appreciate all of the imagery that Isaiah is giving here. He brings to the forefront the nation of Edom. We can go back in biblical history and see that Edom is one of the longest running enemies of the Jewish people. Uh, Edom is the descendants of Esau. You have Jacob and Esau, and that opposition begins there, and you can Track it back to Numbers chapter 20 when the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt. They've been freed from slavery. And they are headed to the land that God has promised them. And there is a highway that will take them straight to that land. But it passes through Edom as opposed to going way out to the east and, and going around and coming back across the Jordan. And so they appeal to the Edomites 
Allow us to pass through on your highway. We won't eat your food. We just want to pass through your land. And the Edomite say, if you, if you come this way, we will come out with swords and we will attack you. And, and so the, the Israelites have to go around. And so this, this sort of hatred, this opposition to God's will and God's people has carried on for generation after generation. And so here in Isaiah, Edom is singled out. It's a nation that at this point is to the south of Judah. But the reality is, uh, there is a declaration against Edom and its capital city mentioned here, but there's a sense in which this is exemplary. The, the, the whole chapter is speaking of a broader destruction of judgment of man's sin, and Edom is being singled out as, take for instance, Edom and its opposition of God's people. Here's what will happen to Edom. And so as we read onward, we're seeing one example of God's judgment. What's described here is devastating. There's massive loss of life. And, and, and the picture that God is giving here is that for generations, the Edomites who fought against God and God's people and God's will, who warred against God, will be decisively defeated. There will come a point when this, this fighting from their end will be stopped, and it will be stopped by God, and God will be victorious in his justice. And so the language, when you get to verses 6 and 7, that sounds very much like the sacrifice of animals in 6 and 7, the, the shedding of blood and the oxen that are mentioned and the lambs and the goats. Really, the, the point is to communicate that those who stubbornly and persistently refuse God's grace, refuse to turn to God, will become their own sacrifice for sin. That's really what he's describing here in this shedding of blood. It is those who have not run to God and His grace and the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, will be their own sacrifice for sin. They will pay the price for their sin, and that's what he's communicating here. So verse 8 then says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. It's two words he uses here, and, and he'll bring back these words later on in chapter 35, and, and it'll be kind of the other side of the coin here. The coin here is saying that those who have persistently, stubbornly fought against God and rejected God's will and rejected his good news, that, that they will suffer his vengeance. These, these are terms that sometimes the world will struggle with when you put these in, in a sentence with God. How can a gracious and loving God act out of vengeance or, or retribution would be another way of saying it here. Frankly, most of the biblical uses of the word for vengeance Speak of God as the source of this. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. Same two Hebrew words. This may seem difficult, but the fact is this is the, this is the attribute of a just God who punishes sin. One, one commentator offers this, I, I think, helpful response. Judgment is the natural corollary of the fact that God is king. A king must rule or he is no king at all, and that means that rebellion must finally be put down. The fact is that God is almost unbelievably patient, but Isaiah is clear that God's just anger is a reality to be reckoned with, and we delude ourselves if we think otherwise, hence the urgent call to listen in verse 1. God has put the world on notice that he will not tolerate insurrection forever. It is arrogant and foolish to think that you can defy a king. We are subjects of the king because he is the creator. We belong to him. It is his creation. We live in his realm. He is the king. And to, 
to either shake our fists at him or simply turn our backs on him and pretend that we have no allegiance to him, no obligation to him, no accountability to him, is utter foolishness. He is Lord and master of the universe. As Bob mentioned during the offering, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. It belongs to him. He has created it. And so we are responsible and accountable back to him. That's why so many people try daily to, to attribute man's existence to chance, to some kind of evolutionary processes that go back to nothingness turning into something and it all just happening because they, they do not want obligation to a creator. They do not want divine design because then that argues for submission to that one who has made it all. Even though man's conscience testifies that the world could not have come into being and could not exist apart from a creator who made it and who sustains it, sinners will go to extraordinary length to deny divine design because they do not want to be accountable to a creator, to a Lord. It is the height of mutiny to pretend that you can dismiss the one who made you and breathed life into you. And the warning in Isaiah 34 is the guilty will not go unpunished. That we, you cannot defy God, dismiss God, act in rebellion to God, and persistently do that and not be punished. And so as we read the rest of Isaiah 34, I'm going to begin in verse 9 and read down. I, I want to encourage you to remember what you know about who God is. He is just and righteous. He is also gracious and patient and merciful. We need to know that because we know that he appeals to sinners even as we read verses like these, beginning in verse 9. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow indeed. There the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord that not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. It's a picture of, of, of a, a land that has been turned into a devastating wilderness. The, the, the temptation here is to see all these animals and think, well, this is kind of fascinating. There's an interesting array of animals. What, what brings them all together is they are all considered unclean by virtue of the law. And the scene here is really just one of the land becoming this dark, empty place that, that a handful of animals live in and occupy, but it is not fit for, for human beings to live in any kind of comfort. This is, this is all a consequence of man's sin. 
This is the devastation that comes by God's judgment of man's sin. He's poured out his wrath, and what's left is chaos and emptiness. If you look again at verse 11, at the end of that verse, when it says he stretches the line of confusion, it's like kind of this line of judgment over it, and it's called confusion here, and the plumb line of emptiness. The, the two words there, confusion and emptiness, that are meant to describe the outcome of God's judgment are interesting in that we find them in the beginning of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's the same two Hebrew words, without form and void, describing to us that prior to, to God doing the creative work that brings order and beauty and all that is good about creation, prior to that it is this formless void, and now he is describing that at the end of earth's sin-marred history, before God recreates, before God reestablishes and renews, that it will have been returned back to this state of being chaotic and without any kind of order to it. Throughout Isaiah chapter 34, there are four verbs that are imperatives, four commands. So four points where Isaiah is saying, hey, do this. Two of them are in verse one, where it says, draw near nations, give attention, O peoples. The other two are in verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord. What, what the four commands are saying is, this is God speaking. And so as tempting as it might be to look at the horror of this judgment and to see the, the darkness of what comes with it and to say, oh, this just doesn't, this doesn't seem like a loving God. Uh, Isaiah is calling them back and saying, this is God's word. This is what he has spoken. And his hand, he goes on and says there in verse uh, 17, his hand has portioned it out to him. He will do it. This is what God says. His judgment is real. He does not act capriciously. He does not act without mercy all along. God has offered forgiveness, redemption to those who will turn to him, those who will repent. But he is a just God, and he has promised judgment for those who remain in their sin, who remain defiant to him. These things are fixed and certain because this is the word of the Lord. That's, that's why Isaiah starts this by saying, listen, I, I urge you to pay attention to this. That's why when given the chance to speak something and to gather the nations, his message is one of warning and saying this, this God is a holy God and he will judge sin. You must turn to him. We should also find great comfort in this chapter because again, it speaks to God's justice, especially for you who have been wronged and harmed by the sin of others. This, it's passages like this that remind us that the righteous judge of all the earth does not ignore or overlook evil he will judge, and he will judge righteously and perfectly. Psalm 145, verse 17, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Our, our human Emotions tend to want to swing the balance one way or the other, that we really love that fulfilling the desires of those who fear him and saving those who cry out and, and preserving those who love him and that wicked he will destroy part. Mm. Can it be like 70-30 one way or the other? This is who God is. He is just and holy. He is loving. He is righteous. 
He is forgiving and gracious. He does preserve all who love him, and he hears the cries of those who fear him, and he saves. And that's what Isaiah 34 is reminding us, that he is also just, and he will punish. But as we move into chapter 35, we've, we've had this judgment that has come that has left creation desolate in chaos and confusion and lacking order. And now we move into chapter 35 and we get the other side. With the coming of the king comes restoration and hope. It doesn't end at the end of chapter 34. And so Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Chapter 34 has been the culmination of the message throughout the judgment of the nations of, if you will not trust in the Lord and you continue to trust in self, or trust in nations, or trust in idols, or whatever it is, if you will not trust in God, here is the outcome that God has described for those who continue to persist in rebellion. Chapter 35 speaks now to those who wait on the Lord, and who trust in Yahweh, who by His grace have been redeemed. The, the big interpretive question when we get to chapter 35 is, can, can we sort of narrow this down? When is He referring to here, when He's describing this Desert that becomes just beautiful, um, luscious, you know, it's just really blossoming and all this life that we see at the beginning of chapter 35. When is this? And there is some sense, at least in, as at the time that Isaiah writes this, some commentators will say, well, the nearest fulfillment of this would have been the return from the Babylonian exile. It would have been about two centuries after the time that Isaiah would have written this after the Jewish people had been taken into captivity by the Babylonian army, had spent 70 years there, and then they are brought back and, 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 and set free. And, and there's a little sense of that if you look at verse 10 at the end of Isaiah 35, when it says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's a little bit of a sense if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that describe the, the people coming out of that 70 years of captivity and coming back to rebuild Jerusalem. There's, there is a picture of that kind of joy, uh, the, the scene when they are beginning to build the foundation to the new temple after Solomon's temple was destroyed, and now they're building the new temple, and it says the old men who remembered Solomon's temple are weeping, but, but the people are shouting so loudly that it can be heard far away because they are just rejoicing at being back in the, in, in the city and the temple being rebuilt. So there's a, there's a little sense of that, and that would be a nearer and partial fulfillment of Isaiah 35. But I, I would suggest to you that as we read the rest of the chapter, it clearly describes an unprecedented time when God comes to his people and God reigns and there is justice and righteousness as never before on the earth, when the eyes of the blind are opened, when the lame are made to walk and the weak are made strong, when the wilderness is filled with life where there had been wild beasts and death and it bursts forth. And ultimately the thing that is distinctive about chapter 35 is that the vision from chapter 6 of Isaiah before the holiness of God being purified by the, the, the piece of charcoal that is touched to his lips and he is purified and made clean, that vision of Isaiah being made purified now becomes the vision of God's people. 
being made clean and purified. So there is more here in Isaiah 35 than was simply fulfilled at the return from Babylon that was a partial fulfillment. But I, I, I believe that we today, as we read Isaiah 35, are still looking into the future. We are looking toward the return of our king, and that is the Messiah. We are looking forward to the one who is righteous in all his ways, and when he comes and reigns over his creation, it will be as never before. The Messiah will be seen, and every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we, we read this with glad hearts. We, we should read this looking forward with anticipation at the coming of our king, but also imagine what it would be like for that remnant in Isaiah's day whose world has been turned upside down by evil. These are the people who were supposed to be God's people, and they are now ruled by injustice. There is evil everywhere. They are trusting in the nations and not God. There is idolatry all around them. And here is Isaiah saying, there's hope. In the midst of the dark wilderness will come light and life. There is one coming who will transform this and renew it, who will make it all new. Now, he uses the language, and we read it at the beginning here, that's flourishing garden, the, 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 the plants that are growing in the middle of the desert, and he uses Lebanon because of the cedars of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon because of the flowers, the groves of flowers in those places. There is much more here than a botanical sort of feast. The point here is that when Yahweh comes, when the Lord comes, he will bring life of the most abundant kind. What is awaiting the redeemed of the Lord is restoration and renewal. And what they will see, not just beautiful flowers in the desert, but as he says at the end of verse 2, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. That's what awaits those who belong to him is seeing God and seeing Him in His glory. And that's what then launches him into these next verses. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, look, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. When the king comes, when, when our king, when our Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, we will see him in his majesty. The weak will be made strong, eyes will be opened, ears will be opened. Those who have been afraid will be told, you have no reason to fear, look, here is your God. Rest in him. Isaiah also reiterates here that those words about vengeance and recompense. If you look uh, in verse 4 again, say to those who have an anxious heart, behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. Recompense is a different word than the one he used back in 34.8, but it's the same idea in the sense of this is now the other side of the coin. In chapter 34, he's talking about a God who comes and who gives to those who are unrighteous, who are rebelling against him, gives them what they have deserved and earned by virtue of their sin. He is pouring out his vengeance upon them. Here, the other side of it is, listen, you who are redeemed, you who have feared man's injustice, man's evil, you who have been victimized, behold your God, he has come to bring vengeance and recompense. Know that God will reward 
God will save. And so it's, a, it's just the other side of saying, now the one with perfect righteousness comes to settle all the scores and right the wrongs. Let's read on now. Verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. This is really important. If you get anything out of this morning, it's right here. He has, Isaiah has stressed God's holiness as much or more than any other Old Testament writer. The word holy shows up hundreds of times in the Old Testament. A lot of times, like Leviticus, it's describing items, people, practices, things that are set apart as holy. But as a description of God, Isaiah uses that word holy as much or more than most to describe how he sees God. Holy. And, and we know why he does this, because we can go back to Isaiah chapter 6 and know that when he has this incredible experience of seeing God on his throne in the temple, and the seraphim are surrounding God, what are the seraphim crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That This magnificent holiness to a degree the likes of which you and I can't even comprehend. And we know Isaiah's encounter with the Lord left him speechless with the exception that he knew he was ruined. All he could see at that point was the holiness of God and his own sinfulness and feel the what seemed like miles between the two. Because here's this, this one who is other, who is separate, who is perfect, who is morally pure. Everything about him separates him from the creation. None is like you, O Lord, Isaiah will say again and again. There is only one Savior. Yahweh is entirely unique and above everything else in the universe. And so, as a result, Isaiah's most frequent title for the Lord when he describes him is the Holy One of Israel. He uses that like 25 times throughout the, the, the book, and it's all over the book. It's not all isolated in one area. It's both beginning and end, and he uses it again and again. And that term only, that description only shows up six other times in the Old Testament. So all that to say, when verse 8 says to us that in this restored creation, there is a highway, and it has a name. It's called the way of holiness. We should be then startled by what he says next. He says, it's the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Much as Isaiah was silenced in chapter 6 in the presence of God, we should be in awe at that moment and go, wait, how can anyone walk on the way of holiness? How does anyone get on this path? We're all unclean. We're all sinners by, by nature and by action. How does anybody walk on this way of holiness? Isaiah's reaction to God, woe is me, I am ruined, should be ours. When, when Isaiah describes to us, there is, this, there is this highway in this restored kingdom. And it is for, it is for those who walk on it. It belongs to them. So how are we ever possibly to walk on this highway? We know it's not based on our own holiness. It's, it's not because we're holy that we get to walk on it, because we're not. We are inherently unclean. He answers the question there at the end of verse 9, when he says, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Those who walk in the way of God's holiness are not there because of any of their own accomplishments. They are there because God has redeemed them. 
because God has paid the price by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that purchases us from out of the wilderness of death and sets us on this way of holiness to impart to us something that is not by nature ours and to allow us to walk in communion and fellowship with God. It's an interesting statement in, in ESV, um, at least some of the translations will put when it says that line at the end of verse 8, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. There's some alternate translations that you'll see of that because that's such an interesting statement. I, I, I would argue with you that I, I think grammatically he is saying that even those who are, are foolish, w- when God saves you and, and puts you on this path, even you can't mess it up and stumble off the road at that point. One commentator goes, fools are those who will always go wrong given half a chance. That's, that's all of us. And, and, and the beauty of it is by God's grace and his redemption and ransom, the, the, the hope that we have in Christ means that one day we will be before our king and we will not be in fear of stumbling off the pathway anymore, of stumbling into sin, of saying the wrong thing, of, of foolishly yielding to temptation. Because we will be made his having been redeemed by his grace. And this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been rescued from that wilderness of sin and and placed on this path of holiness. You have been delivered from the righteous, deserved judgment of God and set before him as one who walks in fellowship with him. And that's why verse 10 then says, they will come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What amazing promises that God, who must pour out his wrath on sinners, would redeem some to be his very own and would cause them to walk in holiness and would restore the creation and make a new heaven and a new earth that those who are ransomed from sin could enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with him in this glorious new kingdom. That is for we who are trusting in Christ, we who by his grace have been redeemed. This morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, my appeal to you more than anything would be that God is true when he says he will judge that he will judge the guilty and they will not go unpunished. But he has held out the offer of his gospel. His son gave himself as a ransom on the cross to stand in the place of sinners and to take the punishment we deserve, that if you will acknowledge your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved and forgiven. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we are those who have reason to sing with joy and gladness. Lord, all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, thank you for reminding us again of the just judgment that we, by all rights, deserve, and yet your mercy and grace to rescue us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that this righteous King is coming, and there will be a day that every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And thank you that with him comes not only judgment, but comes restoration, new heavens and new earth. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. I I plead with you, Lord, that if there's anyone listening here this morning or online that does not 
have this hope that remains in that condition of rebellion against God, would today, would you bring them to the place of embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, of believing that he died on the cross for their sins to give them freedom and forgiveness, to purchase them out of slavery to sin and purchase them into new life. God, we, your people, lift up our voices now so that you might hear in us thanksgiving and gladness and joy acknowledging that you are a great and just and holy God and one who loves his people and would draw them into sweet communion. We are grateful for that and we praise you for it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.